Father, as we look to your word together and we continue in the epistle that Peter wrote, Lord, encourage our hearts, teach us, uh, inspire our faith, uh, help us to see more and more what it means to be like Jesus, that we might live lives faithfully following him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we are continuing in Peter, um, but as we start off, um, in just a moment, I'm going to show you a couple of paintings. Um, I think you'll recognize them. They're very famous. If you go type in a Google search, famous paintings, um, these will come up on the top. Um, they are paintings that you'll recognize, paintings that are worth a ton of money if you happen to have an original. So go ahead and put the first one up there, Joe. Everyone recognize that? Hopefully. Um, anyone have the original? No? Okay. Bummer. All right. Next one. Yep. Again, very, very famous paintings um, worth a ton of money. Um, third one. Recognize that one? Starry Nights. Uh, yeah, they've made that one into like T-shirts and all kinds of things. Um, but here's the thing about art. Art is very subjective. Its value either monetarily or what you might be willing to put in your home um, varies from person to person. So I want to show you another famous picture. Go ahead. Can anyone see that displayed prominently, largely in your living room? It's kind of an odd picture. That's a Picasso. Um, it has never been officially evaluated for sale, but most art people who look at it believe it would be worth at least $200 million. Again, art is subjective. Its value is not determined inherently by what you see. All right, I would like to show you one more. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, there we go. This is an Andy Warhol self-portrait. A man named Joe Simon bought this in 1989 for $195,000. He later, in 2001, went to sell it, and the buyer was going to give him $2 million, because that was the value at that point for an authentic Andy Warhol self-portrait. But the buyer said, I would like you to go ahead and take it to the Warhol Foundation and have them authenticate it. Joe Simon was like, I can do that because I know this is an original. So we took it, and the foundation gives an A, B, or C. A is it's authentic. B is it is not. C is we don't have an opinion yet. He got back a B, not an authentic portrait. They would not sign off on this as authentic. And so it was not worth $2 million because they wouldn't sign off on it. Go ahead and go off of that. Here's what Peter does today and for next week. Peter has just shared with us the incredible gift we have in salvation. He's given us multiple points 
to what God has given, including an inheritance, his great mercy, making him part of our family. He's made us part of his family. Last week, he even takes our struggles and our trials, and he works with us through them. He's given all of this. Peter now turns to a part in his epistle where he wants to say, what's our response? But I want to I rephrase it differently. And this is a personal question I'm asking to you. I don't have an answer for you, nor am I going to judge you based on your answer. This is just between you and the Lord. How much is what God has done for you worth? That picture, they wouldn't sign off on it. Will you sign off on what God has done for you? How much is it worth? Because Peter wants to give us four things. We'll look at two today and two next week. Four things that he says this is a response to the wonderful salvation that God has given to us. Is it worth it to you to do these two things? Right? So we're going to read it. This is in 1 Peter. Um, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you can go to uh, page 1727 in those black Pew Bibles. Uh, 1727. If you don't have your own, you can use those or whatever you like. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's going to kind of add one final little thing. Um, he's already given all these glorious uh, truths about what God has done. But before he does the therefore, he kind of tacks this on. Go to verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Peter says, concerning all the stuff I've just told you about, the prophets were eagerly trying to find out what it was. They were saying things about the future, but they didn't have the full knowledge. They really wanted to know more about what you guys have. Keep going, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter gives all of the, the beautiful truths of salvation, but then before he moves into the therefore, he like adds this one thing on. He says, and you guys are utterly privileged to live in this point, this point in time. You are receiving what the prophets could only look forward to. You are getting firsthand knowledge of Jesus, of the plan of salvation that God put into place before the foundations of the world. You're in the period of time that is getting to experience it. It's like one more little thing to add in before he says the therefore. And it's a pretty big thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about, so I really like, like medieval history, and I like fantasy, and, and I like to think about the glories of living 
when there were knights and castles and all of those types of things. I don't know about you, but if you look at the reality, I would not want to live at any other point in time. <laughs> because there's a lot of blessings we have right now. Things such as electricity, penicillin, sanitation systems, TVs, internet, Starbucks, Netflix, craft beer. I mean, there is so much to living right now. And what Peter is saying is, you have a blessing that the prophets could only look forward to. You have a blessing that even angels wanted to know more about. You're getting to live into it right now. What will you do with that? How much is it worth to you? And before we dive in, um, oh, suitcase. It's actually still got a tag from the last time I traveled. Uh, probably the trip to Colorado. Um, so suitcases, as we know most of them, have not been in use for as long as you might think. A hundred years ago, there were not, well, 120 years ago, there were not a ton of suitcases for two reasons. One, there were giant trunks, waterproof, big trunks that took multiple people to carry. And two, because most people couldn't afford to travel just for the sake of traveling. Rich people did that, and they hired people to carry their giant trunks. Until people started traveling more, especially automobiles, and then especially airplanes. Because now we got to be able to travel light, and so you get suitcases. But what is the problem with suitcases? I don't know about you, but I'm going to tell you mine. I can never get everything in here that I actually want to get in here. <laughs> it's always like it just doesn't fit. You have to figure out what's really important. So you think, I'm traveling to wherever it is. I've only got so much room. Let's make sure I fill this thing up with what's most important. This is very much like my brain, <laughs> especially the older I get. I feel like any new knowledge that comes in, in my wife's words, pushes one of the penguins off the iceberg because there's just only so much room at this point. Um, I really got to be strategic about what I pack. I want you to think about that. As we look at two things that Peter says, these are really, really important. Will you put those things in your suitcase? Because I'm going to tell you what, you may have to take something else out. To do what he's telling you to do, there may not be room for some of the other things. Is it important enough to do it? So, two things. Look back at 1 Peter, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert, a very interesting phrase, it actually says, gird the loins of your mind, um, which is symbolic because literally, this is the verb that would be used because they're wearing some form of robe, and if you want to move quickly, I mean, I could have Dana stand up right now and show you how to, you can't move quickly in things that go all the way down to here. You would literally gird it up. You'd wrap it up in order to be able to move. Today, we might use a phrase like roll up your sleeves. Um, you're getting ready for action. So he says, therefore, based on everything God has done, gird up your mind. Now, how do I do that? He keeps going. Um, With minds that are alert and fully sober, um, and that is the language that, you, that it sounds like. 
Um, instead of your mind being drunk, let it be aware. Let it be cognizant. Right? And if you think of this idea, when you are drunk, and I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many of you have experienced this? But I know some of your hands would go up. What you know is you don't have control or you have limited control. You will say things that you don't want to say. You will do things that you might wake up the next day and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Because you don't have control. Right? What, what Peter says here, uses this idea to say, let your thoughts be controlled. Not by your passions. Not by the world. Not by the emotions. Not, but you need to have control over how you think. That's how you're going to gird your mind up. That's how you're going to get ready. For what? He says this. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I, I want you, Peter says, I want you to get your mind set so that you can really hone in and focus on the fact that God has a plan. And that plan involves this. Jesus came, he lived, he died, and then he rose again. And after he rose again, he ascended into heaven, but he's coming back. So if you imagine this is a timeline, this whole aisle here is a timeline. At the end of that timeline right there, Jesus is coming back. I'm standing here. Peter says, I want you to look at Jesus coming back and set your hope on that. Don't be distracted by all the other things. One of the things I want you to put in that suitcase is the reality that he's returning. Because that reality should impact the present. I know this. I am not alone. This is not all there is. Sickness sucks. But it won't, be all, it won't be that way all the time. He's coming back. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be an eternity. This isn't all there is. Peter says, let that be your hope. Because it is as, assure, it is as sure as Christ coming back to life. Let that be your hope. I would say it maybe this way. Orient your life to the plan that God has put in place. Since I became a parent, planning has become extremely difficult. In fact, my plans with the more kids I get, and I have a lot, I have like 24 children, I think. The more kids you get, the more your plans simply become possibilities, <laughs> hopes, dreams. Um, you can plan it all out, but like, you don't know what's going to happen with your kids. Um, but one of my children, I think, sets an example, and I think we should listen to kids. Because kids often have insights in things. Kids often do things that, like, just, they should amaze us. Hey, let me show you just a couple before I share what my child did. Go ahead, Joe. Here's a few tweets about kids. This kid asked me for some Skittles, but I just finished them. So he stared at me like this the entire flight. Next one. When your child and your dog disappear upstairs for an hour, you should be totally suspicious. 
my 11-year-old's birthday card to me. Life's a water slide where you die at the end. <laughs> and, and look where he's at. <laughs> you are here. <laughs> Here's the thing about kids. They will often just say it as it is. But sometimes the things they say, we have something to, like, listen to. Hey, this is what my child does every single day. Right? This is his schedule. I shouldn't say that. Monday through Friday. This is his schedule. He goes to stride in the morning. That's his ABA therapy. He goes to speech in the midday. And he goes to preschool with Miss Emily in the afternoon. Then he rides the bus home to see his puppy dog. When you wake him up in the morning, this is the first thing he will say to you. Go to stride, then speech, then Miss Emily, then take bus and see puppy doggy. And he will tell you that three or four times at least throughout the morning. And then when I go to pick him up from stride to take him to speech, often the lady working with him will say, he's going to speech next, isn't he? Because <laughs> he made sure that they knew too. <laughs> Miss Emily knows. The bus driver knows. <laughs> because my son has a plan. And that plan orients his life. It orients his day. You take that plan away, there's big ramifications to that. <laughs> Don't take that plan away. Peter is saying, set the plan of God as your orientation. Jesus is coming back. And number two, go back in the text. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Remember, he's already said God made us part of his family. We are his children, and he's treating us like that. Right? And it's really important for what we're about to read that you understand this. We are not employees of God. We're not soldiers. We're not volunteers. We're children. And that's very different. You don't treat your employees or your volunteers or soldiers in the same way that you treat your children. You want different things for them. And he says, as obedient children, number one, don't let the desires or the passions that you used to have before coming to Christ, don't let those determine your life. Don't conform your life to those things. Right? Instead, he says... But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Here's the thing about children. So I tell my kids, and I imagine if you are a parent, you have said something like this. Go clean your room. Pick up your dishes. Pick up your dishes. No, really, I mean it. Pick up your dishes. <laughs> Wasn't just listening to my own voice. You probably said that. But here is something that I try to convey, to convey to my kids. I don't always do this, but I try. I am not telling you to do that just so you'll follow a rule or just because I need that particular plate moved. Because my job as a parent is not to get my kids to follow a bunch of rules. It's to shape their lives. Because rules only bring you so far. I need them to learn to think and to act in ways that are responsible 
and honest and loving. And I can't just lay out all the rules for that. Right? Think of it like this. How many of you play chess or have played chess? Let me say that. How many of you played chess? Raise your hand if you played chess. All right, about half. All of you know what chess is, right? It's not an easy game. But here's the thing. Chess is about far more than rules, right? You can know the rules, but if I know the rules and you know the rules, but you have strategy, who's going to win the chess game? The person with the strategy. Because here's what the rules say. A knight has a certain movement. It's an L shape. You know what the rules don't tell you? When should your knight move? Which direction should your knight move? How should your knight move in relationship to a pawn you just moved? That's strategy. Rules can only take you so far. They are important. But what he wants is not a bunch of rules. He wants you to be holy as your father is holy. How do you do that? You study the life of Jesus Christ. Not to find rules, but to learn what Jesus values. Okay? Go with me on this whole chess thing. The strategy that you employ to obey the rules that you obey is based on your values. Here's what I mean. Jesus says to love your neighbor, right? Everybody know that? Love your neighbor. Do you know that the way you will practice that is determined by the values you have? Because there's multiple ways of practicing it. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm going to list a few American cultural values. You tell me if you disagree with any of this. In America, we prize our rights. We prize our freedoms. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, you can see our fight for our individual rights all over the place. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's a value system, though. Here's the value system of Jesus. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. He said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself. Jesus, on the last night of his life before he dies, strips off his clothes, puts a towel around him, and kneels before the people that are his inferiors and begins to wash their feet. Because over and over again, he showed a value of denying himself. Now, is there anything wrong with personal freedom? No. However, Whatever is your ultimate value system is going to determine the way you follow God. Do you do it out of self-denial or do you do it out of a desire to retain your own rights? That'll change how you follow loving your neighbor. Right? Different example. And I, I've mentioned this story a number of times because I think it is so profound. When Jesus is walking along the lake one day and he goes to a tax collector and he says, follow me. There's a value there. It's a value of saying to the outcast, you belong with me personally. I'm inviting you into my life. 
Now, there's all kinds of ways you can take care of the poor, right? You could give money to a foundation that would support the poor. Or you could yourself invite somebody into your life. Jesus had that kind of value. He invited people into his life. So I say all that to get to one point. To be holy as God is holy means this. You need to learn the life of Jesus Christ so you know what he valued. And what goes into that suitcase? Those values. Because, do you know this? The Bible does not tell you what to do in every situation. Are you aware there are not rules for everything you'll go through? Do you know nowhere in Scripture will it tell you how to change your tire? Not a single spot in Scripture that tells you that. And there are so many situations that we go through. But again, Scripture isn't trying to just give us a bunch of rules. It's trying to give us a lifestyle, a value system, a way of following God and knowing what to do in circumstances. Will you take the time to know Jesus and even be willing to challenge some of the values you currently have in your suitcase and maybe pull some of those out and put some in that are Jesus culture values? That's what Peter says. So two things. Orient your life around the plan of God. Let the future reality of what's going to happen impact the present today. And number two, orient your life around the life of Jesus. Not just the rules, as important as those are, but the actual way that he lived, how he interacted with people, what he was like. Be like that. Is it worth it to you? Because that will cost something. Here's the fascinating thing about the story. Put this picture up again. That picture... It is authentic. And the executor of the estate signed off on it. People who knew Andy Warhol when he did it signed off on it. This guy, Joe Simon, took the board to court because he knew this was authentic. So did everybody else. He has an entire binder filled of people who have signed off on this thing. Well, in 2003... The board looked at it again and still denied it. He still couldn't sell it. Because without the signature of that board, it didn't matter. Go to the next slide. I want you to read this. This comes from Sebastian Smee. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning art critic of the Washington Post. It, speaking of art, doesn't have any inherent value. You know it doesn't even have a use value. It's not like coal or fruit and vegetables. You know, you can't eat it. You can't burn it. It's only got value to the extent that there is a consensus around the idea that it matters. What Jesus did is real. Your salvation is real. It will only have value if you sign off on it. Otherwise, you won't make the changes that God calls for. You won't serve in the way God calls you to. You have to sign off on it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for your amazing love for us. That in your mercy, you did everything necessary to give us life. To give us eternity and forgiveness and hope. 
and that you still today are with us in everything that we go through. Father, not out of guilt or out of shame, but out of a desire to love you back. Will you help us to sign off on our salvation? To live in the way we are called to live. To honor you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.